Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, you know, I just cannot begin to tell you how good it is to be standing here looking at all your smiling faces. It's wonderful. I just hope that you're still smiling when I finish, that's all. <laughs> Listen, um, this morning, we, um, I, I want to talk to you about a time when, oh gosh, it was, uh, there were a lot of things happening. It was, uh, it was a very uncertain time. Uh, people didn't really know what was going to be happening in the future. Things seemed to be going from bad to worse. And, and the people in charge, well, they had some serious character flaws. wonder if that sounds familiar in any way. I'm actually going to be talking about the land of Israel some 3,000 years ago, as described in the Old Testament book of Judges. It's a tale of dark times and deep trouble. And um, we are calling this series uh, Flawed People, Faithful God. There we go. Well done, Bridget. Thank you. It's going to be coming out on Netflix, I think, early next year. But uh, The book of Judges, if you're not familiar with it, comes right after the book of Joshua. It tells the story of the main characters that lead uh, Israel during that period after their entry into the promised land and up until the time of the beginning, the beginning of the period of the monarchy. It's a time span of about 300 years. At this time, Israel was still like a tribal society. It hadn't yet been united under a single ruler. Why is this relevant to us, you might be asking yourself? Well, because despite the distance in time, I think there are many similarities with the world that we find ourselves living in. The challenges that God's people faced then are similar to some of the challenges that we face today. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Oof, that just gives me shivers up the back of my neck. The fulfillment of the ages has come. That's the season, that's the time that we are living in now. In this Series, we're going to see more examples of what not to do uh, than we will of like role models to follow. But the main thing that we see is a faithful God, a God who keeps his promises, a God who works patiently in and through flawed people. There is only one hero in this story that's God. And you know what? That's still true today. And this morning, I want to. Um, I would just say this, the book of Judges was probably compiled many years after the events that we're going to be reading about. It's a time when Israel found themselves no longer in the promised land, but exiled in Babylon. And it's part of the answer, this book is part of the answer to the question, where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? How did we end up here? And this morning, what I want to do is just give you a bit of an overview of the first two chapters, the first part of chapter three, which all serves as a bit of an introduction and sets the scene for what's to follow. We obviously haven't got time to read it all this morning, but do please take a few minutes to read it while it's still fresh in your mind, which is probably like within the next couple of hours or so. (laughs) 
You know, it really is. It's a cracking story. I, I recommend that you take the time to read it. Three questions I want to explore this morning. What is the root? And you'll notice here, they all begin with R. And I've even underlined that just in case, just in case you miss it. What's the root of the problem? Listen, if you're not happy with the direction that your life is going in, that's an important question to ask. Otherwise, you end up just trying to mask the symptoms, which only ends up making the problem worse. Secondly, what's the result of the problem? Listen, not everything that happens to us in life is a result of our flaws and failings. Not by any means, so please don't hear me saying that this morning. But sometimes, you know, it's helpful to ask ourselves, what is it about me that's contributed to this problem? And then thirdly, and this is the most important thing, what is God's remedy for the problem? So let's, to get to the root of the problem, we need to look at the story so far. The, the book of Judges opens like this, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Joshua, of course, was the the leader that God had provided to take over from Moses and lead the people into the promised land, they got off to a great start. And, uh, you know, it was just God was with them. They saw loads of victories. But when Joshua dies, still much of the land remains to be taken. Each of the tribes has been allocated an area uh, for them in which they can settle. But it's not going to be handed to them on a plate. They still need to Trust God to keep his promise and and press in bravely, courageously to take possession of what God has given to them. And so verse 2, in response to their question, God encourages them to press on. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. And note this bit, I have given the land into their hands. God reminds them once again, that it's not all up to them. He's the one who gives them victory. The battle is the Lord's. They are just the, the instrument, the means by which God gives them victory. And by the way, in case you're wondering why the word Lord is in capitals in these verses, in the Old Testament, this is a translation of the name Yahweh, which this is the name by which God himself, uh, God made himself known to Moses. It means, I am who I am. So the tribe of Judah, they move out, and for a while they are on a roll, but then they hit a problem. Chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots, superior military technology. As we read on, we see a similar story with the other tribes. tells us that the tribe of Benjamin failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The tribe of Ephraim failed to dislodge, to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. And in some cases, what they all do, rather than drive out the people, as God instructed, they subject them to forced labor. So progress grinds to a halt. 
Now, on a human level, it's kind of understandable, isn't it? They meet with stiff resistance. No doubt they are weary of fighting. It makes sense to reach an accommodation with these other people, to find ways to live at peace with them and put them to work for economic gain where possible. That's how they see it. How does God see it? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokeh. Gilgal, it wasn't that he lived in Gilgal. The significance of this is this is the place where God renewed his covenant with Israel when they entered the promised land. So the angel goes up from Gilgal to Bokeh and says, I brought you out of Egypt, led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why? Why have you done this? Listen, the way the Israelites see it is they can't do what God has said. The way that God sees it is that they won't do what he has said. Now listen, maybe you feel that God's been a bit harsh here. But listen, when did iron chariots become a problem to God? This is the same God that they'd seen bring down the walls of Jericho without a single shot being fired. They'd seen the sun stand still in the sky. He had rained down hailstones on their on the opposing armies. It, it just it seems that they had forgotten the promise that God had made to them and had started to think that that this was all down to them to make it happen. The root of the problem, I believe, isn't the strength of their adversaries, it's their lack of trust in God. Their lack of remembering the promises that God had made. And you know, here's the it's, the reality is if we it's the same with us, if we wait till we're good enough or strong enough or smart enough or have enough support to do what God is calling us to do, then we will wait forever. As our, Americans, our American friends say, we always feel a dollar short and a day late. Isn't that the truth? We never feel that we have enough of what's needed to do what God is telling us to do. You know, we sang that song, I love that song, Pardon for Sin and a Peace that Endureth. God's own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. God has promised us so many blessings, but we have to press in and make them ours. They won't be handed us on a plate. It's not that we can earn them or deserve them, but by faith we need to press in and take hold of them. What we need, you know, it's like, as, it's, it's as we step out in obedience to God that he steps in and enables us to do what he has called us to do. And, and what we need, it's not that we need a great faith. What we just need is a little faith in a great God. A little faith in a great God goes a long, long way. A God who keeps his promises. Secondly, what are the results of the problem? The consequences 
of failing to obey God and driving out the people of the land are spelled out in chapter 2, verse 3. God says, they will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, some of you might be wondering what to make of this whole thing about God telling the Israelites to drive the existing inhabitants from Canaan. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but we do aim to come back to that later in the series. All I'll say for now is that it would be wrong to see this as some kind of like ethnic cleansing or or an imperialistic conquest. The goal was to cleanse Canaan of idol worship so that Israel is able to live there in covenant faithfulness to God. And, And God's ultimate purpose in all this is to bless and to heal all the nations. But at this stage in his redemptive plan, it's vital that Israel doesn't assimilate with the other nations and become idol worshippers like them. Otherwise, how are they ever going to be able to point people to the true God and be a light to the nations, which is the calling that God has on them? So the result of their disobedience is that idols are being worshipped in the midst of the Israelites. And this will prove a snare to them. Isn't that the same for us? We know that we're under grace and not under law. But if we go on making space in our lives for things that have no place in God's kingdom, then eventually it's going to come back to bite us. So for the Israelites, it would be some years before that happens. Chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grows up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals or the Baals. They provoked the Lord, Yahweh, to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. It wasn't that this next generation hadn't heard the stories of God's saving acts, their deliverance from Egypt, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the, the victories that God had given them. But, but clearly these stories no longer engaged their hearts or shaped their identity This is why it is such a priority for us, isn't it, to invest in our children and our young people. It's not enough that they know the Bible. They need to know the God of the Bible. What was it that attracted them to worship the local gods of the people around them? You know, we can only speculate, but I imagine it would be the same thing as every other generation. The desire for material security and probably sex. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a land that was fertile beyond anything that they had ever seen. And the Canaanites attributed this fertility to their male gods, the the Baals, and to their female counterpart, the Ashtoreths, sometimes known as Asherah. Now the Israelites They knew the stories about how their God, Yahweh, had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. But here's the question, could they rely on him now 
to prosper them and to provide fertile farms in the land of the Canaanites? Or, or would they need to honor the fertility gods of Canaan as well? Why not hedge their bets and do both? Worship both. That's what happens. And add to that the, the worship practices of the Canaanites. They believed that they could influence their gods actions by acting out the behavior that they wanted their gods to demonstrate. Now, since they believed that it was the sexual union of Baal and Asherah that produced fertility, then their worshippers had sex with the shrine prostitutes in order to encourage their gods to become amorous. Now, it doesn't take a degree in theology to see how that style of worship might be attractive to the young men of Israel. It wasn't that they completely rejected the faith of their fathers. If they'd done a religious survey, they would have probably still ticked the box smart Yahweh, just as a lot of people today would tick the box marked Christian. But in practice, their lives were no different from the pagans. And from there, of course, it was just a small step to intermarry with them, the very thing that God had forgiven, had forbidden. So idolatry is a slippery slope. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not just an Old Testament thing, is it? In John, his first letter of John, he warns, he warns the followers of Jesus, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I think that should be 1 John 5, 21. An idol can be anything, can't it, that takes the place of God in your life. It, it's what you center your life on, what, what you attach greatest value to, what you, what you hold dear, what you cherish most in your heart. Now, that might be your marriage, your family, could be your career, your business, your pension, your investments. These are all good things. But when they become a God thing, when they compete with God for our hearts, then they become an idol. And for the Israelites, with God no longer at the center of their life, things go downhill very quickly. The verse that sums it up, and this is kind of like the the theme tune of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that's a pretty good description of our time as well. Tim Keller puts it this way in his latest book. He says, The growing fragmentation of society into different tribes reveals a vacated center, an absence of any shared vision of what's right and wrong. There's a loss of social trust that's rapidly undermining all the institutions that have held our society together. You're not smiling any longer. <laughs> Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. You know, interestingly, the British, the British historian Niall Ferguson, not to be confused with the virologist of the same name, recently commented about a growing belief among leading atheist intellectuals, and he would include himself in this, that our society's cherished freedoms will not survive 
unless we return to the Christian faith that nourished those freedoms in the first place. These are atheists that are saying this. When I read that, I thought, you know, I wish all Christians had such a positive view of the church. Yes, we are flawed. There is no question about it. But you see, thousands of years ago, God promised one man that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And God is faithful to his promises. Finally, what's God's remedy for the problem? Well, with Israel in kind of this spiritual and moral chaos, their enemies are not slow to take advantage of their weakness. So they're constantly being raided. They're in great distress. Does God say, tough, you've made your own bed. Now you can lie in it. No, because though we are faithless, God remains faithful. That's who he is. He can't deny himself. So we read in Judges 2.16 that the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Don't picture these judges like sitting in a court wearing a wig and long robes. They're not so much judicial figures. They are more like tribal chiefs or military leaders. So he raises up these judges. Does this solve the problem? Next verse. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. What follows from here through to chapter 3, verse 6, is like a summary of the rest of the book. It describes a downward spiral that we see repeated over and over. The people turn away from God. They worship the idols of their pagan neighbors. These same neighbors oppress and afflict them. God has compassion on them and raises up a judge and delivers them from their enemy. He rescues them. For a while the situation improves. Then the judge dies and it all begins again. Only each time it happens, the thorns dig deeper and the snare pulls tighter. And that's pretty much the story of Judges. I wonder, is that your story too? You're stuck in this cycle and it's like whereby you just keep falling back into the same behavioral pattern over and over again, no matter how hard you try to break it. And no matter how many times you determine to change. If that's you, listen, I'm not here to make you feel worse than you already do. I'm here to tell you that there is a remedy. That these flawed and temporary saviors that God raises up in the book of Judges point us to a savior that is yet to come who is the full and final remedy for the problem. God himself becomes one of us and dies for our sins and is raised to life in order to save us. The remedy, the real remedy, the only remedy for the human problem is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And it is through him that we can have victory from the downward drag of sin 
and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We don't have to fight our way into it. We only have to put our trust in the one who has fought for us and died for us and risen from us for us. He is the remedy that each of us needs. We'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. In closing, history, I think, shows that this pattern of decline and renewal isn't limited to the Old Testament people of God. I think when we look back, it's been true for the church as well, these times of revival and refreshing. And if you're like me, then we also need that at a personal level. From time to time, we just need God to draw us back to our first love to refresh us, to restore us in our walk with Him. And you know what? This, this COVID pandemic has affected all of us in different ways, some ways more obvious than others. But something I've heard a number of us say is that we have just kind of drifted a bit in our walk with Jesus. It's not that we've lost our faith, but that we've become a bit dulled in our spirit, a bit lacking in spiritual oomph, maybe just kind of going through the motions a bit. Listen, if you identify with that, then don't go beating yourself up about it. We've, we've been through a tough time. But, but here are some questions that you might just find it helpful to kind of reflect on. These are questions that are drawn from what we've been looking at this morning. Here we go. Firstly, is there... Might there be some area in your life, something that God is speaking to you about, where you're saying, I can't, where the truth is, you won't? Secondly, is there something that is competing, competing with God for my heart, for that first place? Thirdly, is there maybe some part of your life where, you know, where I'm choosing to do what seems right in my eyes, something that maybe fits better with the, the culture that I'm a part of, where I'm choosing to do what's, what seems right in my eyes rather than heeding God's word. Just some questions to think about. Because, you know, spiritual renewal doesn't come about by us trying harder but by turning our faces to the one who loves us, whose mercies are new every morning, the one who still works patiently in and through flawed people like you and me. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening this morning. But listen, if you'd, as the band come back up, if you kind of feel like me a bit and, and you feel the need to kind of get your life with God back on track again, you just sense that need for, for just a fresh kind of sense of God's presence in your life, a, a kind of recovery of that love for God that, that, that you once knew, then I'm going to invite you to, to just to stand with me now and I'm just going to pray 
Um, if you don't, that's fine. If you're really happy with your life as it is, then that's fantastic. God bless you. I'm not trying to put pressure on anybody here, but I'm going to pray. And if you want to be part of this, then I invite you to stand as well. Lord, thank you that we have the victory in Jesus. Lord, we just want to declare that this morning. This isn't all about what we have to do. Lord, this is about what you have already done. We just want to come to you and turn our faces towards you this morning, Lord, and ask that you would refresh us in spirit, that you would just strengthen our trust in you where we've gone a bit wobbly, Lord, that you would just give us a fresh understanding of who you are and all that you have done for us. God, that you would bring us in to a place where we are aware once again of your presence in our lives and and caught up again, Lord, in that sense of adventure with you as we press into all that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.